Amen. Our text today is from the book of 1 Samuel, and it's all of chapter 8. Now, let me just help everyone exhale a little bit by what I mean when I say that. That does not mean I'm going to give a detailed attention analysis to every verse here. I am not. But uh, I think you, you need the entire chapter to make the point. So the title of the message is, Choose Your King. Choose Your King. To make sense out of this and to really understand what's going on beforehand, I have to introduce it by talking about what happens in chapter 7. Because part of what happens in chapter 8 is a case of faulty memory, a case of amnesia, perhaps intentional, selective amnesia. So what happened in chapter 7? Well, you know, the Israelites had many enemies, one of whom is the Philistines. So surprise, surprise, they were having problems with the Philistines. So Samuel says to the whole people of Israel in verse 3 of chapter 7, this is NIV. So Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord's with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of foreign gods and the asterisks and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their bales and asterisks and served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted, and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. Now Samuel was serving as leader of Israel at Mizpah. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them, as they do. When the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. They said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and sacrificed it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. While Samuel was sacrificing the offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day, the Lord thundered with, a, with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out to Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below beth Car. Then Samuel took a stone between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, and they stopped invading Israel's territory throughout Samuel's lifetime. The hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. Okay, so that is what happened in chapter 7. Once again, God rescues them from their enemies, and particularly their famous enemy, the Philistines. But then we get to chapter 8, where we find our first point, the request. So if you're taking notes, this is the first thing. The request. What request? What's the situation of the request? So, well, let's read. When Samuel grew old... He appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. 
The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. And they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So the backdrop of the request is Samuel's getting older. He can't travel as much as he used to. He can't carry the load like he used to. And so he does what one does. He appoints successors. He appoints his sons as successors. And we must be presuming, I think, that he anticipated that his sons would probably do things the way their old man did things. But they didn't. They were corrupt. And so, Samuel's old, his sons are evil. Apparently not as evil as the sons of Eli, because there's nothing in here about God saying, I'm going to kill them. But they're bad enough. And so what happens? Verse 4. So all the elders of Israel came to Samuel at Ramaz. Well, Samuel lives. So imagine all the elders from the 12 tribes, you know, this horde of people is showing up to Samuel. And apparently, you know, they appointed some kind of spokesperson. We don't know who it was. But what does the spokesperson say? Well, first they decide to give Samuel a reminder about chronology. You are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. So Samuel, you're old. We've liked what you've done for us, but you're getting long in the tooth, and the people you've appointed are not so good. Now, at this point, I think we have to acknowledge that this is an understandable crisis. If Samuel has treated them with great integrity, led them with integrity, judged them with integrity, gone to the Lord before them, and as we just saw in chapter 7, yet another example of when he goes to the Lord before them, what happens? God shows up. Great things happen for them. So now, apparently this is not happening because he has corrupt children leading in his place. And so it's understandable that they might want to come to Samuel with their problem. And so they make a request. Now, it's understandable that they might want new judges. Maybe they could have said, do you have any more children, Samuel? Do you have other sons? Do you have cousins? Do you have relatives? Is there somebody else that you, know, you sort of brought up along the way that could take your place as the next judge? But that's not their request. They say, you're old. Your sons do not follow your ways. Now, appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Now, this is not asking for a judge. This is asking for a king. And notice that there's two motives here. The first motive is the understandable motive. Corruption. You know, one thing I've learned over the years, and having traveled to other countries, is that corruption is normal. The thing about it is, in the United States, relatively speaking, we have enough of a buffer 
that we can go about our everyday life that we don't feel corruption pressing upon us. You don't have to, st go, you don't have to go somewhere and have people saying, hey, you know, uh, if you're going to get to this intersection, it's going to cost you. And you know that that's just the way you do things. And, and of course, that's just one version of corruption. There are many others. So corruption is not a surprise. It's frustrating, but it's one of the bad ways of the world. So we're not surprised that corruption happens. And if you read the Bible to this point, you can see a lot of it. So that part's OK. We understand that problem. What is harder to understand is the other part of it. We want a king like other people have, like other nations have. Now, what is their identity if you're the Israelites? What kind of people are you? You're the children of Abraham. You're a special people. You're a chosen people. You are the people of God. Yet, apparently being the people of God is not enough. What they want is what other people have. We want a king like they do. That's what they want. So they decide that maybe this is the time. And maybe some people have said, you know, I mean, this judge thing kind of works out for us, and actually some pretty spectacular things happen. But we don't have a king like everybody else does. I wonder if we're not as good as the others. Maybe we'll be more great like the others, or better than the others, if we have a king. And so they said, give us a king to lead us like all the other nations. So that's their request. Now what follows is our second point, the reality check. And the reality check has two parts. The reality check is what God says about what's really happening here. And the other reality check is about the cost of their request. So the first part of the reality check, starting in verse 6. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. Understandably. What's the system been? How's it generally worked under Samuel? It's worked pretty well. It's worked pretty well. And now these people are saying, we want what other people have. And now, you know, hey, we want you to be old, this old person. Why don't we shove you off into retirement? And why don't we just uh, either retire your sons, imprison your sons, eliminate your sons, whatever we need to do? Why don't we just get that out of the way and give us what the other people have, old man? And so he's not happy, understandably. And so he prays to the Lord. And then here comes what's really going on from the word of the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, because he's the one that they're talking to, so he, he probably does feel rejected. Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king, as they have done from the day that I brought them out of Egypt until this day. In other words, Samuel, let's think about the historical trajectory since I brought the people out of Egypt. Because if you think about it, what happened when they came out of Egypt? It's pretty spectacular, right? First of all, 
the fact that they even got out of Egypt in the first place? I mean, how much sense does that make? You've got some guy with a staff showing up telling you, let my people go. He doesn't have an army with him or anything. And this, and, and this guy says, God says, let my people go, or it's going to be rough for, for Egypt. Ha, 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 look at this guy with the staff. What's that supposed to be? I mean, maybe he does a little, few tricks or whatever, but who really thinks that's going to happen? Well, guess what? They got out because God acted powerfully. God did miraculous things. But do you know how long it took them to start having a desire to go back? Not long. And you know what they have in Egypt? They have nice idols in Egypt. And you know what they have where they're going? They've got a carnival full. You know, like if you go to the carnival, there's all kinds of booths. They've got carnival booths full of idols waiting for them along the way to the promised land. And when they get to the promised land. And so what are they doing? Forsaking me and serving other gods. So they're doing to you. They're rejecting you, and ultimately, they're rejecting me. They want an idol. They haven't lost their taste for idols. And so the first thing, they're really just rejecting God as a king. And the funny thing about that is, is God, who's the reason they exist in the first place, not just as human beings, but as a people, God who has done miraculous things for them. And they say, yeah, but I like a king I can see, like the other people have. It looks pretty spectacular, you know, all that parading around in those fancy robes. We don't have anything like that. I mean, look at what you're wearing, Samuel. Baycoat imagination. So the point is, the first thing is that they're rejecting God as king because they want a king they can see, rather than one who speaks to them, who acts for them, but they cannot see him in person. So that's the first part, the the reality check. They reject God as king. The second part is the high cost of having a king. So then God says, Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. So what's going to be the price of admission for having a king? Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. So get ready for a little bit of a list. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. And they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest. Still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys, he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks. And you yourselves 
will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. In other words, what's the taxation? Pretty much everything. Everything you care about, he is going to take it. He's not going to request it. There's not going to be any negotiations. He's going to say, I need your children. I need your servants. I need your land. I need your produce. I need your flocks. Basically, whatever you have, I need it. Welcome to taxation. The price is going to be high. And Samuel's telling him this. God says, let him know if this is what you want, this is what's going to happen. Because, of course, this is what kings do everywhere. I mean, if you think about monarchies, even generous monarchies where you may have a benevolent king, it's not that benevolent kings don't require things of people under their rule. They absolutely do. And actually, the thing is, of course, if it's a monarchy, it's not about your rights. It's about the choices of the ruler, the desires of the ruler. It's not about what you think. It's not about what you want. It's about what they want and about what they can take as they wish, at their will. And what can you do about it? Nothing, except maybe cry about it. It's like, oh, you're crying. Okay, well, too bad. Because why? Because I'm the king and I can take what I want. That's why. So it's going to cost you if you have a king. No surprises, folks. And here's the thing. It's easy for us to be thinking about this and to be thinking about them, but we need to be thinking about ourselves as we read this. Because let's be honest with ourselves, shall we? We live in a world where there's all kinds of enticing things out there. All kinds of things that offer you the world. All kinds of things where you want to say, oh, you know, if I could just have that, everything's going to be all right. And what is the case a lot of times when people get what they want? They may get that, but they get other things too. There's a price of admission for those things. Because when it comes to things that people are essentially making into idols, what's the calculation that we have when it comes to idols? Idols may be nice to you at first, but they're going to be demanding more and more and returning less and less all the time. I always think about it like a really bad drug addiction. Because the first time somebody gets higher, whatever it is, it's like, whoa, hey, hey. This is all right. This is pretty nice. But the problem is, is that you want it again. And, and so you take another hit or another injection or another whatever it is. And it's kind of nice, but maybe not quite as nice. And so you take more and more and more, and you're dependent on it. And it slowly, or sometimes not so slowly, does what? It begins to have very negative effects on the person that is giving in to the demands of this. And of course, I'm not only talking about drugs. Drugs is just an example. It's anything that's an idol. You think the idol will give you life, and then the idol gives you a little taste of something that seems like the fullness of life, 
and then you begin to get less and less of real life and you participate in distorted life. That's what happens when you worship idols, when you give yourself to idols. And so sometimes people know what the deal is and they go, yeah, I've heard about those things, but I think I can handle it. And other people think, I didn't know that this was part of the deal. In this case, they know. Crystal clear. So they get the reality check. So Samuel, I mean, I imagine that they came to Samuel. They made the request. Samuel probably looked at them and said, I'm going to go talk to the Lord. Turned away. And then probably had a scowl on his face and said, Lord, I am really bent about this. And so he goes and prays. And, then, you know, and, he, t and he told the people, I'll be back after I have a little talk with God. And so they have his talk. God tells them what to say. And now he's given them the reality check about the high cost of having a king. And so he does. And now we get their rebuttal. So what's their rebuttal? Verse 19. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said. We want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations. So here's the thing. They want to be like the other nations. We want what they have. We want to be like them. I don't care what you're telling me about the cost. I like what they have. It looks pretty spectacular. Can't we have our own pomp and circumstance? Can't we make our name great and have a king to represent us about how great we are? Like all the other nations, that's what we want. We want a king like they've got. And that's not all they say, though. Like all the other nations. Watch this. With a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. So when we're up against it, the king will save us. The king will rescue us. Now, I ask you, what just happened in chapter 7? What just happened in chapter 7 when they're crying and whining about what the Philistines? What just happened? What does Samuel do? Samuel went to the Lord for them. First Samuel said, guess what? First, repent of your idolatry. Get rid of your idols. I'm not going to go to the Lord before and say, save these people if what you're doing is saying, save me while I keep committing covenantal adultery. While I keep saying, Lord, I want you and I want my little side hustle here too with another God. So they put him away and what happens? God fights for them. God goes before them like he's been doing ever since he's called a nation out for himself. That's what he does. He's fought for them. He's won their battles for them. But they want a king 
that they can see who goes out before them to fight their, their battles for them. It's a really powerful temptation, isn't it? Because, really, it's just a grand version of the kind of temptation that people have had ever since Genesis 3. Because, think about this. So there's, God says, God who is immensely generous, says to Adam and Eve, you can have all of this. One thing. One thing. That tree, you're not to eat of its fruit. Now think about this. Essentially, you've got the whole world. And God says, just don't eat of that fruit right there. But the rest, look at what I've given you. It's yours. And along comes Satan, who says, did God really say that? You know, in other words, is God really good? Does God really want your best? You know, what if, what if you did eat that? What if you took a piece of that fruit and you just stared at it for a while? Something you can see. And you know what happens when you take a bite of this thing that you can see? You know what happens when this thing just gives you more than you could imagine? It's not just that it's going to taste good. You know, the, your body's going to be satisfied. It's not just that it looks nice. You know the best thing it's going to do? It's going to make you spectacular because you get to be like God. And the thing is, ever since then, things that God has made, people keep wanting to find what they think is the perfect calculation to have something from the Creator that they can participate in and that if they reach out for that thing and they make that thing their number one, if they make that their Lord, if they make that the center of their life, then they're really going to have life. Why? Because I bet I can have the life I've always wanted and be what I've always wanted to be if I replace the creator who made it with something he made. Whether it's a king that you can see or anything else, this is the way it works. This is the way it works. And so they're saying, hey, I mean, all we want is what they have. It looks so awesome. And will feel so good if we have a king like all the other nations have who fight for us. And so Samuel heard all the people said. He repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them. And give them a king. Then Samuel said, everybody go back to your own town. And so they want what others have. They want a warrior who's their top warrior that they can see because they think that if they have what other people have, then they'll really be what they're supposed to be. 
The amnesia is strong, and the temptation is strong. The amnesia about the fact that they only exist in the first place because God saw this, this nomad named Abram and said, hey, you, leave your nomadic life over there and be a different kind of nomad, and I'm going to make you a great nation. And the result of you being a great nation is actually, I'm going to save the world. Because in you, all the nations are going to be blessed. Now, does Abraham know that that means Jesus is coming one day? Probably not. He does know that there's a promise that somehow all the nations are going to be blessed through what God does with this particular nation. And so God, from Abraham, makes this nation. And they go through trials and tribulations, like being in Egypt. But what does God do? God shows them who is really the king, who is really the creator, who's really God, who's really powerful, who's really a provider. He shows them all those things again and again and again and again and again. And they get amnesia again and again. It's like, oh, that was so great. Hey, look, look what they've got. But that idol, I like that design. Isn't it okay if I worship the work of my own hands? Something that I made and shaped and maybe put some gold or silver plate over it? It's kind of nice. Can't I worship it? Can't that give me life instead? And then trouble comes. They turn to they cry out to God and God says, put them away, put the idols away. Worship me alone. They say, well, okay, we'll do it. And then what happens? God shows up. God goes before them. He fights for them. He delivers them. He shows them that he keeps his promises. And he is willing to be generous. He is willing to be merciful. And he is willing to give more and more and more and give more and more and more life rather than saying, if you worship me, I'll take more and more away from you. And isn't that just what happens sometimes with the way that people understand who God is? They think that if they give their lives to God, if they do things God's way, then what's God going to do? Well, I think if I give myself to God and if I do things his way, what's he going to do? Oh, he's just going to make me miserable. I'll tell you how to be miserable, okay? You pick your temptation. Think about it for a moment. I'm going to take 10 seconds. Now, if you thought for a moment about your chief temptation, because we all have them, and please, by the way, no verbalizing of said temptations. Keep it between you and the Lord. All right, but the point is, is that what happens if you worship that temptation? What happens if that is the thing to which you give your life? You tell me about how good it's going to be. You tell me about the quality of life you're going to have. You tell me how that's going to transform your character. You tell me how that's going to make you the greatest human being of all times. You tell me if that's what it's going to do. Because the thing is, the way the great temptations work is they say, I'll give you a little bit of something that makes you think that this is what heaven is really like. 
And you think that because that thing gives you a little bit of what heaven is really like, that then everything else that you've always wanted is going to come from that thing. And ever since Genesis 3, what we've seen is over and over and over and over and over and over again, is that when people make those things their king, they wind up being the biggest losers. That's just the way it is. Because it's God's world. And he says, your life is a life I gave you in the first place. And I know what you're like. And I know what's best for you. And if you really want the good life, if you really want the best life, if you really want generosity, if you really want to be somebody, then come to me and you can be somebody. Come to me and you can have real life. Come to me and yes, you'll see that there are great things in the world. And you know what I'll tell you to do? I'll tell you how to enjoy them without idolizing them. God says, I'm happy for you to participate in my world, for you to enjoy my world, but I'm not so happy if you make my world a competitor to me because you're not supposed to be replacing me with my world. Worship me, and like you're part of my world, participate in it, enjoy it, serve me in and through it, but worship me alone. That's what God says. That's what God wants. And what we see, what happens with the Israelites, what's happened to human beings ever since, is that when people choose another king, other than the one who made all of this, they're just the next casualty. They're just the next casualty. Wash, rinse, and repeat. Over and over and over again. And so the thing for all of us to think about is this. What about us? Because you might say, well, man, those Israelites, oh, what amnesiacs. I'm glad I'm not like them. Well, look, uh, maybe you're not like them, but maybe you're closer to them than you recognize. Or maybe you're not like them today, but you might be tomorrow. You might be this afternoon. You might be after you get out of the service. Because the world that God has made is magnificent and absolutely potent. Absolutely potent. And he wants us to enjoy his potent world. But he says, don't let the potency turn you into a worshiper. And so all of us, every day, have to be thinking about the fact that God is the one that is the source of life, the source of our good, the one who wants to give us real life. Now, maybe for some of you what that means in the first place is really understanding who the true king is. Because here's the thing. They want a king they can see. Eventually, we do get a king, we can see. His name is Jesus. He's the ultimate king. He's God, become flesh, identifying with the world that God has made, living a perfect life, showing us who God is, showing us what God requires, and he says, here's life. 
I offer my life for you on the cross. I'm resurrected, which tells you that what I was saying was true. And that if you give your life to me, you really have life. You really want to be somebody? You really want to be the best human being you can? Then be reconciled to the one who made you in the first place. And Jesus makes that possible. The great temptation that we've had since the fall is to believe that if we turn away from God and go our own way, we'll figure out the best way. And all we've done is figure out lots of bad ways. And so, you know, I mean, and that's really what sin is. Sin is all the different ways that people say, no, thank you to God. Let me figure it out for myself. And they do it from individual ways all the way to ways where they build nations and structures, etc. There's all kinds of terrible ways that people are sinful. But God says you don't have to only pay the price for being a sinner. Because Jesus has come to pay the price for our sins. And if you accept what he's done for you, you have your sins paid for, and you have life with him. I'll make you alive. I'll give you a new life. Now, open parenthesis. You know what I didn't say? Giving you a new life doesn't mean giving you an easy life. Giving you a new life doesn't mean giving you the life you want. Giving you a new life doesn't mean you get to be in charge. Giving you a new life means that, no, you give him your life. He gave his life for you. And he says, if you come to me, then you belong to me. But here's the thing. It's the best kind of belonging you've ever had. Because you're belonging to the one who made you, who knows you, who loves you more than you can imagine, and wants you to show the world what God's really meant when he created human beings in his image. What it really means to reflect who he is. And so if you don't know him, you can give your life to this king. You can be reconciled to him. You can be united with him if you come to him. And he's always, he's always willing. He's always waiting. So if you don't know him, maybe today is the day where you say, I need to give myself to him. Because, you know, this trying to worship other things and have other things be my king, it really is not the deal that I thought that it was. It's not the transaction that I expected. He says, come to me and you can really have life. You can have forgiveness. You can have eternal life. And you can, have, and you can begin having the equality of eternal life now. None of that means a perfect life. None of that means an easy life but it does mean a better life, and it does mean God is committed to you and he is transforming you. If you belong to him, then maybe the thing is, maybe you, you, you really need to pause for a second, look at your life and say, what are the things that God has given us in the world that I don't just like as good things, I actually kind of make them parallel to him. And I don't want Jesus to be Lord, I want Jesus to be the great sponsor of the things I like. People want that all the time. Would you please sponsor my habits, my politics, my family, my hobbies, I mean, whatever it is. Please be my sponsor. He's not going for that. If you want to know how to serve him in that, 
great. If you want him to sponsor it, not so great. Only he is the Lord. And he's not interested in any co-Lord relationships. And so maybe there's something that's tempting you and you want to say, well, I'm not the Israelites, but there's something that makes me say, I want a king like other people have, because it does look kind of spectacular. Well, you know, there are a lot of things that look spectacular if you want to look at it for a second. It's like why I used to think about celebrities, and this, of course, is a great region of the country to talk about that. I used to, I used to not understand why people who look so great, hey, look at this couple that's married. This actor and this actress, they look magnificent. I'll bet their sex is even better. And next thing you find out is what? They broke up. It was abusive. They were dysfunctional. They looked great, but it was really about as substantial as cotton candy. It was beautiful, fluffy, and nothing. And that's the thing. There's so many idols that when we look at what they seem to offer, we think, oh, the magnificence. But you get a little closer, it's like when you take, the first time you saw cotton candy, you thought, oh, oh, thank you. Hey, it's going away. As soon as my lips touch it, it's like evaporating. What's going on? I thought it was supposed to be fluffy and sweet and marvelous and give me something substantial on the inside. And it's basically this, you know, sugar that's just evaporating into nothingness. It has no nutritional value at all. And that is what you must understand about idols. They will seem to give you everything. They will have the greatest, perhaps the greatest public relations campaign in marketing. And then you'll wind up with nothing. And you know what I think, especially when, now I've said, I think I've said this before, Matt, but I'll say it again because I think it bears repeating because it doesn't happen a whole lot, I think. It may happen here, but, it may not, but I don't think it happens in most churches. It's always fascinating to me that people talk about certain sins in the church, but people are strangely mute about idolatry. I always think it's great to talk about you know, these other problems that people have in the world, and you should talk about them, but you know what you need to talk about? Idolatry. What did God just say here? What's the problem? Worshiping other idols. That's exhibit A. And people are really quiet about that, probably because it gets a little too close. But here's the thing. You want it to get close because if you really want to be walking with God, because you need to find out what your idol factory is. And you need to have God go to it and blow it up. We all do. All of us. All of us. And strangely, of course, you'll find that your idol factory has strange regenerating and rebuilding properties. And God says, I'm happy to keep flying over it and dropping nuclear bombs on it all the time. If you want me to but you have to want it to. And today's a great day to say, Lord, what are my idols? What are the things that I want to make God instead of you? What are the things that I want to make, I want you to sponsor rather than you being Lord? 
What are the things that I'm holding on to because I think they give me more life than you do? What are those things? And God may not be telling you, get rid of it. He may be telling you, put it in its right place. Don't make it an object of worship. Make it an object of service. There's some things he may be saying, well, that's got to go. Other things you may be saying, you got to put this in its right place, in its right category. And so the opportunity for me, as well as for you, is to say, what king will you choose? The, ki the king who made all of this, not just this building, I mean this universe, who made all of this, who knows everything about you, who loves you more than you can imagine, who's made life with him possible through Jesus, that king, or do you want a king of your own manufacture? A king that because you can see it, you can reach out to it, and you think it will give you something better than the king who made it all, than the king who gave you the materials for that idol. I'm going with the king who made all this. I hope you will do the same. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for salvation. Thank you that you are the greatest king. Lord, amnesia is an easy thing that can happen to us. We can get busy. We can get caught up in good things. We can just find ourselves swept up in the intoxication of the temptations of the potent things, the great things you've made in your world. It's so easy. Yet you, Lord, are greater than all those things. And you're so loving and merciful and generous and you're the God of infinite second chances. And you say to us, choose your king. Lord, may we choose you. Where we want to be your people. Not like the other nations, but we want to worship you and to be the people you have made for yourself, the people called by your name, the people who are reflecting your good news, reflecting that Jesus has come, that eternal life is possible, that we can begin experiencing that eternal life now, and that you will be present with us through all of our circumstances, peaks and valleys. Lord, help us to choose you. And in choosing you, transform us and empower us by your spirit so that when people see us, they see people who've chosen you as their king. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.